Your role is to learn and bring things into the organization. That's a, actually a really nice role to have. We learned from experts who we were kind of guided along the way and we were taught to be curious and we, we noticed things and that's a very similar approach in software systems. And we can't accept anymore that the system is largely green. We now need to accept that we'll have instincts and to learn from them and we'll learn to notice various states and trends. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. The funny thing is that we didn't start out serverless. So an agency built the first iteration of our our product, which is a, a website where you can buy secondhand cars online. We started container-based. So we had containers in Azure. So we started cloud, but we started container-based uh, in Kubernetes, actually, uh, in Azure. And while we started building our organization that would take over the agency uh, that built the initial software, we had a lot of issues with actually operating and understanding Kubernetes and understanding all everything that goes on. Um, although everything was infrastructure as code and everything was very well written, we identified really early on that that wasn't going to be our um, differentiator. At the start of the pandemic, when we actually pivoted our product as well to a standard second-hand car listing website to a website that we sell since cars like our cars directly to consumers so that was a massive product pivot and we also decided well maybe it's a good opportunity to switch to serverless and the reasoning there was we didn't want to care at all about anything underlying our software so we didn't not even containers it's one of those funny things that intercom says they say run less software and i think kubernetes counts as software if you can get away without running kubernetes you absolutely should yeah, and it was, it was a very funny thing for me because I came on uh, thinking, oh, I haven't used Kubernetes, sounds fun. Uh, I'd done a form of optimization scheduling in the past, so I thought this is an interesting problem, but actually we found that we didn't want to solve that problem. Uh, it wasn't a problem we wanted to solve, so serverless made complete sense. And not only we moved from containers to serverless, we moved from Azure to AWS because AWS made sense as well. And Eventually, I think that made complete sense because um, six months later, we had a product that we launched and we had a massive success. We had no issues at all. We had very minimum platform, if I can call it a platform, and that was just configuring uh, AWS accounts. So you did this before you kind of did your major launch to customers. So it wasn't like changing the tires on the car mid-race. It yeah. was We let the website running as it was, and we launched the new website with a click of a button six months later. Ah, nice. So that's not easy either, like trying to build and ship something that's got a completely different architecture. It was not easy at all, and we had to scale at the same time. We, uh, we started at the start of 2020 with two product engineering teams, uh, that we just created to take over the agency that I spoke about earlier. And in March, we probably had two or three. And then by October, we had six product engineering teams building this this website on the side. Six teams building it on the side. <laughs> yeah. And we actually spent 
quite a bit of time thinking about how we do it in a way that it, it's not as big as a bank, if that makes any sense. Okay, customers wouldn't didn't see the website, but um, we were deploying to prod as if it was prod. And at the end, we ended up just having a, uh, I think it was a feature feature switch. We just switched the feature. Yeah, and it was, that was going to be my next question. Like the hardest part with, you know, developing two versions of the same thing in parallel tends to be, well, you know, team two is trying to frantically build to catch up, but team one can't just stop building, right? They can't stop shipping new features or fixing bugs and stuff. And at some point you just have to call a hard, hard stop and be like, I'm sorry, no further progress may be made on this branch so the other one can catch up. Yeah, as an organization, we're quite influenced by team topologies. Oh, yes, Manuel Paises. Yes, I, I, I love Manuel. He's great. Yeah, and Matthew Skelton as well. They, um, I think Matthew Skelton is based in Leeds as well, where I'm based. And it's interesting because we, um, we talk about uh, the, the two parallel teams working in two parallel software systems. I was actually tech lead of one of the teams that, was dealing with the, the live website, if that, if that makes sense. And we do design our organization. We do design our teams in a way that makes sense. So that team would take ownership entirely of, you know, the day-to-day, the BAU, if you like, um, feature. Talk a little bit more about, like, what the lessons are that you learned from team topologies that really helped you practically. I think the number one lesson is the idea of Conway's Law inverse maneuver that you need to be very careful in how you design your organization. You need to be very careful with what constraints you put on your organization. It's all about the, the team types. So all, interestingly, Team Topologies talks about four team types. Um, up until recently, we only ever had one, and that one was the Streamaligned team. Because mm-hmm. the reason is we didn't need one, uh, any other type at that point in time. And the other big thing is communication between teams. This idea that it doesn't have to be maximum communication. It's actually too much communication might be a problem. Yeah. In fact, the developer advocate we just hired who just joined Honeycomb, uh, Jessitron, she posted an article this week about how the more kind of freeform communication collaboration you have between like different teams in completely different areas of the business and the less structured it is, the more potential you have for these weird like intertwined dependencies that should be formalized. Mm. Don't get me wrong, we got those weird dependencies that weren't formalized, but we tried very explicitly to evolve our organization in a way that some constraints were put in place. So we are we are quite influenced by the Spotify model terminology, at least. Mm-hmm. So we have product engineering teams that are autonomous and cross-functional, and we call them squads. And then initially we just had squads, and then we said, okay, well, actually we have too many squads, now we need to kind of break them down into logical business units that made sense and then we ended up with three tribes that were logically separated and that creates micro worlds and it creates some separation between squads because naturally a tribe that does search and convert for example is quite different from a tribe that does operations which is delivery and inventory and things like that and they end up with quite different tech and they they end up with different types of engineering practices so it's helped us quite a bit Right. That's a fun little uh, overload of the word operations to mean not yeah. software operations, but like driving cars around operations. Oh, interesting. It triggered me really early on. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I did call that out. But um, the other interesting thing is uh, talking about designing with intention is that we had some constraints from the very start. So we started out with no manual QA. 
and we thought we're, we're not going to have any manual query at all and and what that meant is that we had a lot more focus on automation so test automation cicd automation so pipelines and deployment patterns it definitely sounds like you kind of had a greenfield environment to some extent right you were able to be thoughtful about how do you want to build this out how do you want to make it scale i think our tech leaders were quite brave to say we inherited this from the agency. Um, can we break from that and create something new? And that was quite brave at the start, but I think it, it paid off eventually. It's not that the old backend, for example, is not still used. It is. We're still phasing it out, but it's it really didn't have much overhead in terms of operating it. It sits there, it works, it does what it needs to do and key parts of the website as well, but it, we didn't need to iterate over it. So it's worked quite nicely. Where do like SREs fit into this? Like, do, do you have any SREs? We don't right now. SRE practice is a practice that we want to evolve. We're currently, I would say, probably designing for that a bit, a designing our organization for that. I'd say that I've been speaking a lot about uh, surface level objectives uh, internally and trying to go from monitor everything to, okay, what matters for your service? And you have how many software engineers? Right now, we probably have about 100, but don't hold me on that. I can't, I'm not entirely sure. Um, That's either amazing work or, oh my God, there are so many efficiencies that you probably could have if you had some SREs. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> I think we would benefit a lot from SREs. One thing that we have done is um, each product engineering team has, as you would expect, all the roles, all the kind of cross-functional roles that you'd expect, which is... A number of engineers, you'll have a tech lead, um, you'll have maybe a UXer, you'll have an analytics person. So all the skills that you need to deliver software. We also have another another role which we termed as automation engineers. Now that may be quite a badly <laughs> named uh, role, but their role is very much a almost like a DevOps subject matter expert or a, an engineer, a software engineer who focuses a lot more than normal. Every software engineer should, but a lot more than normal. How can we improve our infrastructure configuration? How can we improve our deployment patterns? How can we improve our observability instrumentation? How can we improve our monitoring? It's great to have engineers that are devoted to that, whether they're software or SRE. And to be fair, there aren't really that many SREs out there who have a bench of serverless experience, although there are some, and... I think that there are some amazing force multipliers. But we should pause to ask you to introduce yourself here. <laughs> so I'm uh, Apostolis Apostolidis. People call me Tolly for short. I currently work at Cinch, uh, a UK startup or scale-up, you could say now, uh, that has built a platform that takes the faff out of finding and buying a used car online. At Cinch, I started out at the company's emphasis, so we were about five or ten people at the time as a DevOps advocate as such, because we wanted to build the organization with DevOps first mindset or an observability first mindset. And I moved a few roles since, but right now I probably moved to more of a staff engineering role focused on DevOps across the organization. And I'm about to move into more of an engineering practice lead role focused on DevOps again. So you can see how my role has evolved. That makes a lot of sense then why you might not have needed to hire SREs if you had, you know, as the number six employee in engineering, already that expertise in DevOps being baked into your culture from the start. It's kind of living the dream, honestly. <laughs> yeah, my, my biggest thing really is I'm, so I'm a software engineer. I've touched all the stacks in the past. I, I studied maths and physics in the past, but 
when I was told, well, you're here to learn about DevOps and you're le- here to learn about observability and go away and follow this, uh, this person, Charity Majors, and you'll, you'll learn everything. And your role is to learn and bring things into the organization. That's a, a actually a really nice role to have. It's challenging at times, but because it's explicit that your role is that, it means that it's important for the organization. You're not a DevOps team, you're a DevOps advocate, if that makes sense. So there's a very, very subtle differentiation. Right. It's a matter of responsibility. Is it a shared responsibility or is it this person's only responsibility? Yeah. So you mentioned observability in there. Like kind of what led Cinch to consider observability as a primary concern of, of DevOps? What was kind of important to you about observability? So as an organization, we wanted to build a platform that at the time in 2019 seemed a bit crazy, but very quickly we realized that it's something that's happening in the industry quite a bit. So we uh, recognized really early on that we need to experiment and fail fast and optimize for fast flow and small batches and experimentation, actual software experimentation. So to do that, it's not enough to just deliver. We wanted to be able to understand what our software is doing in production. And when I say we, it, it, from the start, we didn't say, oh, we'll have an ops team, we'll analyze things, and or we'll have a data team analyze things. We wanted from the start the teams to take ownership of their production systems and the teams to understand how they behave and be curious and figure out what their changes are doing. And it goes back to that principle that teams who build the software know the software the best. Yeah. So they're in the best place. I want that quote like in gold. It's just like teams that build the software know the software best. It's just like an immutable law of software physics. Yeah, it makes me really grateful to hear that there are teams that are approaching things this way rather than, uh-oh, we didn't practice this, now we're in trouble, now we're in pain, right? Instead, when you start from this proactive stance of let's empower devs to own their software in production, you get better results. And how hilarious and ironic and awesome to see it come from a group of developers, like starting from the beginning. You know, I've often lamented at how few ops founders there are, how few teams have ops from the beginning, but you don't have to have a specialist from the beginning. You know, if you just take this shit seriously, you know, software engineers are more than capable of, of learning what needs to be learned if they just respect the discipline and level up at it. You have an ops background charity, right? Yeah. hundred thousand percent. I can definitely recognize that ops is hard. Software engineers are finding it hard, but they're learning, especially at Cinch, we're learning a lot. But it takes time. We have hiccups on the way. We have, where are my logs? I want my logs. I can't find my logs. I just want to log this. Just just yeah. let me log this. But to, oh, no, but you can instrument your code. You can have tracing. You can have custom metrics. You can you can have things on the front end as well. That was a big battle that we fought. Mm. Of, uh, you, can, you can measure real user traffic. You don't have to rely on either uh, logs or synthetics. Did people think that it was going to be too hard to do? Were they just unfamiliar with it? Kind of what were some of the barriers that you saw that you had to kind of push out of the way? Biggest barriers were um, what does a good observability instrumentation look like? I don't know. So we need to help with that. Mm -hmm. And we're still learning. To be fair, very few engineers in the world have ever experienced it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny because when we were in Azure, we actually got it into a place where it was really, really really good, but we only had four services. But as you scale, uh, it becomes um, really hard. I guess the, our biggest challenge was 
okay, software engineers really like writing code and really like delivering software and even all the challenges of deployment patterns and all that. But then how do you teach people to be curious? How do you teach people to know where to find things or ask questions or get familiar with their production telemetry data? Mm-hmm. I think that was the biggest challenge. And, and tooling mm-hmm. is pivotal for this because it's an extra UI that you need to learn. It's an extra SDK you need to learn. It's an extra yeah. extra concepts that you need to learn around observability that is not just out there. It's not like TDD is now. Um, everyone puts CDD on their CV, but it, observability is not on everyone's CV. Right. It's in its infancy. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Tyler, you had submitted a, a talk for Olicon, right? Yeah. What, what was that talk about? So I wanted to talk about our uh, journey at Cinch, how we went from container-based cloud services in Azure to a serverless AWS software systems, uh-huh. and how we went about taking our teams, our product engineering teams, on a journey uh, of observability, and how we got to a place where each team owns their production of telemetry data, if I can call it that, and their instrumentation of their code mm-hmm. until they're collecting that telemetry data in useful queries. There I say in dashboards that initially, uh, personally, I was very against um, this idea that, oh, we'll just create, you know, I probably our tech leaders would say, where's the dashboard where I can just look at and to a place, or so dashboard gazing type um, exercise to a place where dashboards are actually used at Cinch as as a regular ceremony. So after stand-ups, you'd kind of look at your dashboard like, is there anything odd here as a team? You look at your dashboard and say, is there anything odd here? Right, exactly. It's not that dashboards are inherently bad. It's that end-maintained dashboards are bad. So if it's something you're looking at regularly, if you're regularly immersing yourself in your system, I think, Charity, what's that thing you say about like knowing what things look like if you look at them regularly? Yeah, I say all kinds of shit. But yeah, dashboards are not evil. It's just that dashboards are a jumping off point. And dashboards, like, I'm, oh, my rage is only for static dashboards. If there are dashboards you can click on and dive down into and slice and dice on, zero rage. Those are great. I don't think of those as dashboards. I think of those as like querying tools, right? And that's the mindset that people need to be in while they're trying to debug their systems. That what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And this sort of active, you know, interrogation instead of just like, I have seen and been the ass person too many times who's just like flipping through countless dashboards looking for a spike that correlates, you know, or just sort of like hazily pattern matching going, that ah, feels like, you know, Redis, which is super validating when you're right, but it takes a whole fuck ton of like intuition and experience and stuff to be able to like pattern match. And you can't expect that of everyone, right? It's better to have a tool that allows you to like ask questions, not at the level of low level systems, like this or that, you know, IPv6 and slash proc, whatever, you know, those spikes are just like constant and like almost meaningless, but like at the level of, you know, functions and endpoints and, you know, the world that software engineers spend their lives immersed in, you should be able to, you know, engage with it, with it dynamically at that level. And I feel like just if people rely on dashboards too much, they're often blind to what's not captured there. You know, their mental model of the system is much weaker and they're jumping to the answer and then looking for evidence that they're right over and over again, instead of like, iteratively like following a trail of breadcrumbs to find the problem. I think the biggest challenge we faced is um, trying to understand what's important for each team. Yeah. So one key thing is that our product is a, you would call it a high value product. So every sale 
matters. Um, it's a car that you buy. Um, so everything that happens in the system is is not important. Not everything is important, but you want to. There's be- a real dollar value associated with some transactions. Yeah. yeah. So if you can't check out, for example, you need to be instrumenting for having all that information about why you can't check out or knowing that customers can't check out. And for us, it's been quite a journey because serverless has allowed us to actually think about these things quite a bit. I keep thinking about this. Why haven't I done not done observability? Why have I not measured things this well in the past? And it's probably because we cared a lot about, okay, where is my VM? Where is my server? Where is my container? How do I get to production? All this stuff, whereas all this stuff at Cinch is really quite... Okay, we have our testing, uh, regression testing. We have various patterns of regression testing. It's transactional, but it's not zeroing in on the business use case, right? Yeah, so we have a lot of business metrics. So we, if I could say the observability types that we started with were more custom metrics in AWS, um, either through logs, so CloudWatch logs, or through AWS custom metrics. And those, they would measure things like, cars sold or uh, car delivered, things like that. Uh, Whereas then we started thinking, okay, so what else is important? What other kind of high cardinality data points we can have that we can query against? And and that's been a journey. So did you start thinking about it first as a cardinality problem or a tracing problem, or is it kind of both at once when you were coming to this realization? I think there was a big difference between what I was thinking and where I was influenced and what actually uh, the engineering teams were thinking. And I think we had to kind of meet somewhere. So the first question that the teams tried to answer is, how do I know if my service is not doing what it's expecting in production? So they started with probably with metrics. That's it. Uh, They started metrics, not even any dimensions on the metrics or any tags. Um, so they would know with that, but then they started using tracing initially with, with X-ray because it comes almost out of the box. And then they use logs as well. There's teams that use logs heavily. One big thing is we use uh, real user monitoring on the front end. I think that that's been quite an eye opener for a lot of front engineers. At Cinch, we have software engineers across the board that you might have a front end background a bit more than, than others or a back end background a bit more than others, but Typically, you're a software engineer, but still, front engineers are not used to measuring real traffic. Right, exactly. Can I actually see this user transaction flowing all the way from the front end through to the back end? It's huge. It's, it's really eye-opening. Exactly, exactly. And breaking those barriers down. I'd, li- I'd love to sit here and, and tell you, well, actually, you know, we started the tracing and we could see the whole the full, the full trace, which we did actually in Azure, but in serverless, it was a bit harder. Um, I'd say... The biggest achievement we've had is that teams own their production systems and from your machine to production is really close. And then in production, most teams know what's going on. How often do your teams typically get paged or woken up in the middle of the night? That's that's a great question. Woken up in the middle of the night doesn't really happen almost at all because we're entirely based in the UK right now. So we don't really have anything. People don't buy cars in the middle of the night. That much? Huh, really? <laughs> no impulse shopping with cars, huh? <laughs> Buying cars is funny because you might be looking at a car for a few weeks. Can't remember what the match. I think it's about two or three weeks that you might be browsing a car and you buy it eventually. Yeah, it's not a, a thing that you do in half an hour uh, as a choice, I guess. In terms of incidents, we started out really sensitive with incidents because, as I said, we have a relatively high-value product and every issue with anything in the route of buying a vehicle was an issue. 
uh, and we we raised it as an incident. I think there's a there's a very special separation between in hours incidents and out of hours incidents. Uh, In hours incidents is entirely owned by teams, especially when the incidents are related to services. The impact is like out of hours is like five times that of in in hours. Yeah. And I think that the, the way we deal with it is different as well. So typically out of hours, we take the stance that, okay, you might have an incident, but unless it's really, really, really critical, it can wait till the morning to fix it. We've ne- we never really have any issues that, oh, website down, we need to deal with it right now. I can't remember an instance right now. It's always more subtle than that, right? It's usually more subtle. And how is the like on-call rotation staff then? Is it staff per team or do you have like Intercom does with a volunteer rotation of engineers who, who volunteer for the night shifts? Right now it's a volunteer rotation. I'm part of the rotation as well. That's so good to hear, right? Like that you can make teams accountable for their stuff during business hours when they're more likely to be doing pushes anyways, and also have people, you know, have on-call be pleasant enough that people are volunteering for it rather than being gooned into it. Yeah. That's so great to hear. One other question I wanted to ask was, you mentioned kind of the distance. You, you literally said like the distance from desktop to running in the cloud is very short. What's kind of that interval between someone writing code and it running in production? In terms of time? Yeah, in terms of time. It probably takes, for a backend change, it probably takes about five, ten minutes to get to production by the time you commit. Nice. The funny story is that um, when we started building up our AWS account structure, bear in mind we didn't know much about AWS. We were, we were learning us uh, on the go. Um, we had a prod account and we had a dev account and we were about to create a UAT or a staging account just because that's what software engineers do, right? And um, we decided against it. We said we don't need a UAT. Well, what's the reason for UAT account? Well, yeah, and yeah. so that has served us until now. Um, we're restructuring our accounts now, but for a long time, we have a dev account, which acts in various ways, usually as an integration account. And then your next step is prod. And that's it. So you deploy today, we deployed prod, and, uh, and that's it. And that's really shortened the distance. Yeah, test and prod. Yeah, and and it puts a special emphasis on prod. Serverless is so good at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you guys embraced like feature flags and progressive deployments, anything like that? We haven't as much as we'd probably want. What we do do is we have static feature flags that are kind of build time feature flags. Um, that's the extent. And we also have A-B testing on the front end. Mm-hmm. So typically when we release a new feature, we'll A-B test it, we'll progressively release it, even from you know 1% to 50% of traffic. Yeah. But we want to look more into this. Uh, we looked at it a bit um, with serverless. It's not as straightforward. But yeah, we probably want to investigate more in it because right now it's it's either on or off, right? Right. One question I had was about your service level objectives. You mentioned you kind of have been starting to keep SLOs or at least keep track of key user journeys. What are the things you encourage your teams to do, given that they're kind of you have a bunch of independent teams now? Right now, we're very early on with service level objectives. What we have definitely in terms of maturity is is monitoring. Uh, unfortunately, we've got the monitoring everything mantra. Uh, so. I think we've caught the attention of our software engineering teams that you want to know if something goes wrong. I think in terms of a journey, uh, it felt like an easier win. Our next stage is, okay, so what does your service do and what level is okay for you? And then the next question is, how do you measure that? 
So we started out with one or two squads or product engineering teams, and they're measuring things like, you know, uh, latency of our lambdas. Um, they're measuring things like, are we returning uh, vehicles, the, the types of the makes and models of vehicles that we expect, things like that. So it's a mixture between performance operations and even business as well. Which makes total sense, right? You have these critical user journeys. Fast is good. Slow is equivalent to down. And you want to make sure and validate that people are, at the end of the day, able to buy cars. Yeah. As I say, we were very early on. And I definitely think that we we would benefit from SRE concepts like uh, SLOs. I think that there's a, le- a certain level of cognitive overhead that that entails. So what do other organizations do to actually get to that place is it separate teams because i know google well i don't know i've I've heard google has separate sre teams that helps with this i don't think that people need separate sre teams per se but i do think there is a discipline involved in kind of saying you know what are we getting meaning out of these alerts are we getting value of these alerts or should we turn them off this is not one of those new things and and systems. This is something that SREs and ops people have been battling with for, you know, fucking 30 odd years. And so there's a lot of best practices and there's a lot of, but they're, they're not easy to just like give someone a rule book and go do these things. You know, it's, it's much more of a feedback loop and an adaptive sort of process. You know, for example, a mistake that a lot of software engineering teams make is they care deeply about their service. So they, they alert themselves on everything, you know, and, and the, the shift to SLOs and, and budgeting is, is in large part meant to relieve that, to not page you on symptoms or page on, you know, flaps or, or whatever, but actually to align operations engineering pain strictly with customers are in pain, right? If your customers aren't in pain, your engineering teams aren't in pain. And that is something, you know, when teams are earlier, they are often like, you can grow up for a long way, like over alerting yourselves, right? But there comes a point at scale where you just can't and you have to relax your standards a bit and like only alert when your customers are being alerted. I think there's another piece to that question that you asked, which was about kind of the value of adding incremental telemetry data, where we tend to push back really hard on this idea that more logs are better or more metrics are better, right? That it's better to have one set of good signals than three sets of crappy signals. Yeah. Yeah, I think for us, um, I think the telemetry data is there now and we're in a good place with instrumentation practices. I think the big challenge now is how do we get to a point where we own our service level objectives or we own what the service level that is acceptable. And probably that's a theme throughout building Cinch is ownership helps with everything. Uh, lack of ownership is means that it won't happen. Um, basically, so I can see the solution being something along the lines of if you own your service level, if it's your responsibility, then you'll find a way to measure it. You'll find a way to, to know. Exactly. And I think the corollary to that is if no one can remember why that alert is there or if you always turn it off every time, you don't need to wait for someone's approval to turn it off. Just turn it off. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. You have autonomy over that. It's not just, you know, you have, you know, your team has autonomy. I'm making air quotes, you know, but you're bound to your past decisions. You're really not. You can change it. If the question is asked, then delete the monitor, delete the alert. <laughs> Same answer to tests. Yep. Delete the test if it's not useful. If, you, if you're wondering it, delete it. Yeah. If it's really important, you'll find out. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think there's a tendency also for engineering teams to, to just like with tests, you know, they'll, they'll keep the ones that are failing around because they see it as a point of pride and stuff. And it's just, there's diminishing returns, you know, like you said, just delete the test, move on. Yeah, yeah. So we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the analogies between, you know, adopting a very observability first mindset with software with, you know, the pandemic and the observability of like biological systems, human systems in, in production. Yeah, I was thinking uh, this summer that the world has gone through a, a weird phase right now, uh, whereby the system is not as green as we, we thought it was initially, and we all know about it. It's impacted uh, all of us, and that's why it's termed the pandemic. And I was just thinking about how we've gone through a journey of assuming that everything is fine and assuming that we don't need to care about things to a place where actually we all use terminology or we all know things and we know how to do things that we didn't know two years ago at all. We, it was something that we had to think maybe by exception. So I was thinking, especially with data, we started out thinking about, well, how how impactful is COVID? How much problem has it caused to the point where now we almost all have an, I'd probably say an agreed way of measuring the impacts of COVID. And that's a for me, a great analogy to software systems. They're both biological systems and, and software systems are complex systems that you don't always need to know the detail of what's going on. It just ticks along. But And you have to act before you have all of the information. I think this other interesting piece here is this idea that it doesn't matter, you know, if you are missing data as long as you have the ability to kind of zoom in and enhance and pause that new question and gather the data for it and then pause that next new question and gather the data for it. That's kind of how we get there iteratively rather than doing it all at once. Yeah, for, for me, the analogy with Cinch as well is, and, and generally the approach that Cinch has taken is that we democratized the observability of our biological systems, right? In the pandemic, we, we all learned to contribute to the data we instrument our bodies, right? We, we all go and do PCR tests. We all go, go and do rapid tests or self-tests. We're aware of the various metrics. We learned from experts. We were kind of guided along the way and we were taught to be curious and we, we noticed things. And that's very similar, a very similar approach in software systems. And we can't accept anymore that the system is largely green. We now need to accept that we'll have instants and to learn from them and we'll learn to notice various states and trends. Yep, spotting the common patterns. Yeah, um, unfortunately, so my partner is a molecular biology researcher, so she, in explaining the pandemic, she told me, well, it's happened now. <laughs> we need to deal with it. <laughs> you know, that's what we say in software as well. An instant happens. That's just something we need to accept and learn from it. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show, Tolly. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. It was my, my pleasure. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollycast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.